All right, cool. Well, like I share with you each and every week, my name is Travis, and I serve as the pastor of Preaching Theology here at Mission. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out that huge screen behind me. You should be able to follow along there. Also, if you do not own a Bible, here at Mission Church, we lead, preach, sing, and meditate upon the scriptures. So as you leave here today, feel free to pick up one of those paperback Bibles as our gift to you. Now this morning, we're going to continue in our teaching series through the book of Psalms that we've called an Exiles Prayer Book. You see, the Psalms are not so much a song book, but they're a prayer book for the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. And what we see is that this serves as a prayer book for us as we wait the second coming of Jesus. And today, the Psalter, King David, is going to show us through his prayer who God really is. Likely, you heard some text in that prayer that David prayed that you never thought would come out of the mouth of a believer, right? And so this is pretty much a difficult text. Many people, as they preach through the Psalms, they get to a chapter like this, and they just kind of skip over it. But here at Mission Church, we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and useful and to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us in righteousness. So we're going to pray again, and then we're going to walk through this. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for how it is living and active and that when it goes forth, it does not come back void. And as we read texts like this, God, we can find our hearts just kind of wrestling with it. And I just pray, Father, that today by the Holy Spirit's power that you speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight for you are my rock and my redeemer. And Father, I pray for each and every person here. I have no idea what is going on in their hearts and their lives, but God, you see the unseen. And so we pray for your word to rest on our hearts as you see fit. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. May he be big this morning. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Now, there's a huge difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. For example, let me explain. If you've come to our membership class, you've heard me talk about this. But several years ago, I found myself in the Venetian casino with my wife and my father-in-law. I had on a Kentucky hat, I had on a Kentucky sweatshirt, and right there in the middle of the courtyard of the Venetian was Walter McCarty. And some of you are like, who in the world is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. You see, Walter McCarty is a six foot ten power forward from Evansville, Indiana, and he played for my favorite team, the Kentucky Wildcats. In 1994, I was up late watching Kentucky play LSU. We were down 31 points at the half. Biggest deficit in history, NCAA history. I went to bed, turned off the TV. I thought for sure the next day around the table at high school in the lunchroom, I was going to get ridiculed because my team lost. Yet the next morning, I woke up. I turned on the news to see the glorious good news that Kentucky came back and won. And who hit the three-pointer to secure the win? Walter McCarty. He won a championship in 1996. And in 1996, he was drafted number 19 by the New York Knicks. He ended up playing for the Phoenix Suns, the Clippers, the Celtics. And for some reason, and I don't know why, I know that because he was a tall man, he was skinny, the coach would force him to eat double-stuffed Oreos to gain weight. And there he was, in the middle of the Venetian casino. Like a kid who just, you know, I don't know, just got the best present in the world. I took off running right towards him. I left my wife. I left my father-in-law. I ran up to Walter, looked right up at him, and I said, you're Walter McCarty. He said, I know. I said, I'm from Kentucky. And he goes, I can see that. And then I said, thanks for all that you did. And I ran away. Now, do I know Walter McCarty? Not really. I know a lot of facts about Walter, but I don't know him. And could you imagine what my relationship with my wife would be if all I knew was facts about her? 
If all I knew is she has brown hair, brown eyes, that she's Greek, I know when her birthday is. Sure, she loves that I know that about her, but she wants me to know her in such a deeper and richer way. She wants me to know her heart. She wants me to know what she likes, what she dislikes, what brings her joy and what brings her sadness. And in our text today, David is going to tell us what God is like. He's going to tell us what God takes joy in, what he delights in, but he's also going to share with us what God hates, what he abhors. So if you've got a Bible, look with me in Psalm chapter 5. Here's what we read. For the choir master with flutes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sign. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you, and you watch expectantly. Last week, we saw that David prayed at night, and here he is praying in the morning. What do we learn? That David knows who he is, and he knows who God is. No doubt, David knows he is a king. But is David the ultimate king? Absolutely not. You see, there is a king that is above all kings, and that is God. And David's loyalty and allegiance is not to himself. It's not to someone else, but rather his loyalty and allegiance is to God alone, for God is his king. And notice how confidently David approaches God. He knows God, and better yet, God knows him. But let me ask you a question. Would any of us ever approach, say, I don't know, the president of the United States? Would any of us ever approach the governor of our state or even the mayor of our city with our whole being like David is doing here? I mean, David is saying, listen to my words, hear my sighs and my groaning, and listen to my cry to you. Would any of us go up to our president, our governor, our mayor and do that? Hardly. Yet God is above all of these authorities. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves is this. Can we approach God like that? And the answer, I need you to hear me, mission, is emphatically yes. You see, David literally is commanding God to hear his words. These are imperatives. He's saying, God, pay attention to my groaning and my sighs. And God, I know you will not be upset when I cry out to you. You see, David approaches him based upon a deeply personal relationship with God. Seven times in these first three verses, David uses the word what? My. And think of my kids saying, that's my dad. And you get what David is doing. Several years ago, my youngest daughter was doing a somersault in our backyard. And as she did that somersault, she broke her forearm. Now, when she broke her forearm, she didn't come up to my wife and I and go, Mother, Father, I beseech you, I have appeared to have broken the radius and unilobone bone in my forearm. Now, if you don't mind, would you take me to the hospital or fetch me an Uber? I'd be greatly appreciative. Did she do that? No. I would look at her and go, what, are you a robot? But rather, what did my daughter do? She said, Mom, Dad, listen to my words. Pay attention to my groan. And I know you will not be upset when I cry out to you. And friends, those who don't know God, but really know who God is through a relationship with Jesus, sure, they come to him respectfully. But they also come to God as a child that is confident that their father loves them and understands them. Several years ago, I went to dinner with my brothers and uh, my father. And as we were out to dinner, one of my brothers began to pray. 
And it was, you know, quickly seen that and heard that as he was praying, he was struggling. You ever been around somebody like that? And so he's praying and he's struggling and he gets done with his prayer and he looks right up to us and he just says, guys, I am so sorry. I did not know what to say. That was a terrible prayer. My brother, my father, and I just laughed at him. Why is that? Because we're ridiculing him? No, because you and I should not apologize for prayer. You see, the question that many of us that I want to ask you is how many of you can relate to that? Over the years, I've heard people say to me, I don't really feel comfortable praying out loud. And my question is, is if you're saying that, why are you praying? Could it be that the reason you struggle to pray out loud is because you're not really praying to God, you're praying to be heard by others? Or could it be because you don't really know God? You see, so many of our prayers are detached and impersonal. And that's not how God wants you and I to pray to him. I mean, one of the best prayers in the scriptures is not the Pharisee who's rocking out some great, you know, linguistic, you know, prayer, but the, the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? That one went away right with God, not the other one. Charles Spurgeon, who is a, just a good, famous preacher, he's got a great beard, kind of like John Lee. Um, but listen to what he says. He says, true prayer is measured by weight, not length. A single groan before God has more fullness of prayer in it than a fine oration of great length. You see, it is because David really knew God and because God knows him that he could cry out to God and he could sit there with what? Eager expectation, knowing that God would respond. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we uh, watched my mother and my father's golden doodles while they went out, you know, out of town. Now, one of my parents' golden doodles, every day and every evening, slept right next to the front door. Why? Waiting for them to come back, eagerly expecting that they would come through that door. My daughters order stuff on Amazon. And when they order something on Amazon, do they just wait passively? No, they wait expectantly, looking at that front door, waiting for the delivery man to come through. Now, why did that dog and why do my kids wait with eager expectation? Because they're absolutely confident. You see, that dog is assured that my mother and my father love and care for it and knew that my mother and father wouldn't abandon her. And my kids are confident because they know that the mail is going to go through. And David said that he pleaded his case and he's confident that God heard him. And he's watching with great expectation for how he would respond. How can David be so confident? He knows God. He knows his unchanging character. He knows God is his king. And he knows that God always does right by his people. In the Gospels, especially in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we see that Jesus preaches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Fifteen times in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what Jesus says? Your father. When you look in Matthew chapter uh, 6 verse 9, he says that you and I are to pray to God as what? Our father. Tim Chester, who is a theologian, says it like this. He says, your father in heaven is the father of Jesus. And the relationship, listen, listen to this. This is so good. The relationship that Jesus has with God the Father is now the same relationship you have with God the Father. The moment you trust in Jesus. You see, sure, the R in this text implies to all people, all Christians in every space and place. But the R in this verse, don't miss this, also points to the same relationship with the Father that Jesus himself has. You see, mission, Jesus is 
the true son of God. And when we trust in him, God adopts us into his family. He puts a spirit inside of us so that you and I can live and feel like a child of God. Paul writes about this in Galatians 4, 6. He says this, And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba. It's a term a child uses for their father. Abba, Father. Chester says that through the Spirit of the Son, you and I who follow Jesus experience nothing less than what Jesus himself experiences. That the moment God adopts us into his family and brings us in, we have the same joy, confidence, and love of being a child of God as Jesus does. And think about that. When somebody adopts a child into their home, does not that child have all the same rights and privileges as a biological son or daughter? Yes, absolutely. And think about why somebody adopts a child. I have family members who have adopted children. When I go up to them and I say, why did you adopt that child? You know what they say? Because we wanted her. Because we wanted him. And think about the way you and I get to pray, saying, God, hear my words. God, listen to my groans. God, don't be upset by my cry because I know you love me. When we pray that way, it's just an emphatic declaration that God wanted you. And that's why he's saying, pray to me like that. Don't come to me with this, you know, you know, long wordy prayer. Come to me with your whole being. And that's what David's doing. When I was studying this this week, man, it made me want to do backflips in my office. Because how many times do we just rehearse these long, lengthy prayers and God's not honored by that? He just wants you. You see, David knows the character of God, and he shares that with us. And how does he do it? He tells us by what God is not. And this is a little bit kind of abrasive. And some of you just, just put your seatbelt on, okay? Here we go. Verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> For you not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. But I thought you hate the sin and love the sinner. Got to be careful of our Christianese statements that don't align with Scripture. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. You see, in David's prayer, he proclaims theological truth about who God is. And he says, absolutely emphatically, God, you are not one who delights and rejoices in sinfulness and wickedness. And praise God that he doesn't delight in these things. Amen? You see, God only loves that which is good, beautiful, and true. And God's love for us and his hatred for those who practice sin are basically the same side, are two different sides of the same coin. And we struggle with that. And I know this is going to be a little bit theological, but I need you to hang with me because all scripture is for our good. And this is a glorious truth of who God is. I have two daughters at home and I love them immensely. And if somebody harms one of my daughters, am I not furious with them? And if somebody harms one of my daughters and I don't do anything about it, do you not think my daughters would question whether or not I love them? You and I tend to hate that which destroys what we love. And God does this in a perfect way. You see, God's love and hatred are not arbitrary. God hates sin, and he hates that 
those who practice sin, because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is good, and because he is so loving. All of us in this room, we want a God like this. We want a God who is holy, just, and good. How do I know this? Because when somebody hits your car, do you want them to pay? When one of my kids get hit by one of my other kids, do they not want that child to pay? Yet when you hit somebody's car, do you want to pay? Yet when they hit somebody, do they want to pay? You see, we always love God's justice. We love God's goodness and his holiness when it works in our favor. And think about how incredible the goodness of God is in light of what he's not. David tells us, number one, that God does not delight at all in wickedness. What this means, and I need you to hear me, is God does not think wickedness is fun or funny. He's not attracted to it, and he's not entertained by it. And when I read this this week, it was like, ouch, why is that? Because I'm oftentimes attracted to and entertaining wickedness when it comes across my TV screen, when I see it on the internet, when I see it in the movies. And the question is, can many of us be so desensitized to sin because we're so entertained by it? He goes on to say, number two, God cannot dwell with evil. That means that evil is never a house guest. God does no evil, nor does he tempt with evil. And in the Bible, whenever we see God's holiness interact with that which is evil, he's not indifferent to it, guys. He's not indifferent to it, and nor does he ignore it. If anything, we see that God's holiness, when it confronts evil, he either consumes it like a fire or he purifies it. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see that Isaiah is standing before a holy and righteous God for six solid chapters. He is just spewing out words. Yet when he sees God and his holiness, what does he say? Woe is me before I am a man with unclean lips. And what does God do in that moment? Lightning bolt and zap him up? No. He comes to him and he purifies him. And you need to hear me. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus in this room, 1 John 3, 6, or 3, 3, 6. Yeah, it was 3, 6. It's in my notes. I got it. Okay. 1 John 3, 6. The apostle John says that those who follow Jesus do not make a practice of sin in their lives. They're constantly repenting of it and trying to kill it. And if you are a Christian in this room and you find yourself not in a posture of continual repentance, you got to ask yourself if you really know Jesus. Because you and I are always to confess our sins to him. For he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from every wrong. Right? But then, what does James 5.16 says? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you be healed. He goes on to say that the bo- those who boast cannot and will not stand before God. Who are those who boast? Are they not the ones, the kings and the rulers who conspire against God in Psalm chapter 2, ones who are trying to overthrow God and to harm God's people, he says they will not stand, which is why God hates all evildoers, literally those who make a practice of sin. He abhors it. He destroys it. He destroys deceitfulness and lying. He takes no pleasure in those who do violence, which is literally in the Hebrew is bloodshed, murders. And if you and I are sitting here this morning, because I can imagine what you're feeling as you're sitting there, you're sitting, gee, sitting there thinking, geez, I'm so glad I came this morning. But there's some of you that I know are sitting there and you have enough self-awareness to hear this text and go, wait a second, that's me. You see, God's 
holiness puts us all in a bad spot. Each and every one of us, myself included, could raise our hands and say, yes, I've delighted in sin. I thought it was funny. I thought it was entertaining. I can remember points in my life before I walked with God ridiculing Christians, calling them dumb. And don't miss this. David himself knows this is true of him. David's not just this, you know, really righteous, good dude, is he? David was a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And mission, you and I will not understand the good news about what Jesus has done unless we thoroughly understand the bad news. I oftentimes tell my kids that a firework shines the brightest against what? A really dark backdrop. These stars that you see around shine the brightest when the backdrop is the darkest. And it is in the light of this backdrop that David shares with us and his enemies, and even, I believe, with himself, some really good news. You see, there is a way you and I can approach God in which we will not experience his wrath, experience his anger, and that is by knowing him. Listen to what David says in verses 7 through 8. But, if you've got a Bible, circle that, because you know I love the big butts of the Bible, okay? Because good news comes after. But I enter your house by the abundance of whose love? Your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. You see, how are you and I, and even simple David for that matter, able to enter into God's house? It's a great question. Does David say, I can enter your house because of my great love for you? No. Does he say, I can enter your house because of my righteous good works? No. Does he say, I can enter your house because my unbelieving, perfect record in church attendance, or my unbelievable, perfect record in church attendance? No. How can he enter God's house? It's the Hebrew word has said. It refers to God's covenantal love. When my children were little, we used to read to them every night the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you're an adult, and you have not read that book, go buy it. It's not just a children's Bible. You see, Sally Lloyd-Jones rightfully understands the Hebrew word has said is this, an unrelenting, never giving up, never stopping, unbreaking, always forever love. And praise God that his wrath against our sin is not the last word. You see, friends, you and I can only enter the house of God by his presence and into his presence by his love for us. All other religions teach that the way you get to God is not through what God has done, but through what you can do. They tend to describe religion as a mountain with God at the top and us at the bottom. And there's different pathways and trails up that mountain, which are different religions and ideologies. And they basically say, you just pick the right one, you take that path, and you can get to God. Yet that type of analogy is completely antithetical to the gospel. And I remember sitting on a bus in which a guy was sharing this with me, and I looked at him, I go, that's not Christianity at all. You see, Christianity is more that God's on top of the mountain, we're down at the bottom. He came down in the person and work of Jesus, picked me up, and took me back to the top without me even taking a step. And how did God show his love for us? John, again, is so helpful in 1 John 4.10. Listen to what he says. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul says it in Romans 5, 8 through 10. He says, God proves his own love. 
Why does that verse just resonate with me deeply? Because when I'm in the dark night of the soul with enemies all around, and I'm going, God, how can you let me do go through this? I thought you loved me. Where are you? He takes me to Romans chapter 5, and he goes, I proved my love for you. You know where I'm at. You know my disposition, my, my, my look upon you. And what is it? God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, blood will we be saved for, through him from what? Wrath. He says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Mission, notice what Paul says. He says that God loved you and that he came for you, that Christ died for us while we were still sinning. Not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you made yourself better. He says that Jesus died for us while we were still enemies. We weren't indifferent towards God. We were actively rebelling against him. And it was when we were actively against him that Jesus, what? He died in order to reconcile us back. I mean, I wrote this in my notes, and I think it's good. I think it is. I'm going to share it with you anyway. It says, Christianity is not be good, then God welcomes you. Christianity is not be better, then you can enter God's house. Rather, Christianity is God is good, sent Christ, and the moment we trust in him, everything changes. He adopts us into his family. We move from sinners to saints to enemies to sons and daughters of God. Just the other day, I found myself in a brief conversation with a guy who doesn't go to church. And while I was talking to him, he said, I don't want to go to church because at church, all they ever tell you to, you know, all they ever tell you is what you have to do. And I quickly just responded, yeah, but at our church, we don't tell you so much about what you should do. Rather, we tell you a whole lot about what God has done for you. You see, it is only when you and I know what God has done that I believe you and I will be given new hearts to want to do what God tells us to do. You heard me say a couple weeks ago in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And it's not a conditional statement. He's like, if you do this, then you might do this. No, it's a future active indicative. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, if you love me, you will. It's not a matter of if and might. You will obey my commands. Why? Because you've been given a new heart. And when you really know who God is and he changes your heart, you want to obey his commands. You want to do his will. And those who experience God's love through Christ long for God to lead them. They want God's guidance and direction in their life. Think about this. David is no doubt in a tight spot. He's literally, by himself likely, surrounded by enemies, thousands of them, squeezing in on him. And his prayer is not, God, get me out of this. God, put me on a safe path. But rather, when the pressure is coming down on him, he says, God, put me on a path that will mostly please you. Put me on a path in which I can most glorify you. You see, no doubt the Christian life is good, but it's not easy, is it? Nobody in this room who is following Jesus Christ is going to be immune from the trial and the trouble. We're going to go through physical, relational, and emotional strain. And it is in those moments in which that pressure is coming on those who love God pray, God, how can I most glorify you in this? You see, he's basically saying your way, make your way clear and straight before me. 
So far in this text, David has been talking about I and mine. Now he moves to they and them, okay? He starts talking to those who are against him. And listen to what he says in verses 9 through 5, or 9 through 10, sorry. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an empty, open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. David prays to the ultimate king, and he knows he's the ultimate judge, and he asks him to act justly on his enemies. David is not taking matters into his own hands. Rather, he is waiting for God to act. And notice what the hearts and plans of these people are. They're destructive. They are not beating with love and passion for God and to honor God's people, but rather they are dead, open graves. Who in here has ever smelled a rotting corpse? Okay, I have, okay? Some of you are like, I've never done it. And it wasn't a person, it was a guinea pig. You see, while I was out of town, my son's guinea pig by the name of Neville had passed away. And instead of discarding that guinea pig in a way in which you should, it got buried in the backyard. Nobody told me. One day I go outside, I see calcium deposits and water deposits starting to get on the brick wall. I know there's a leak. Somebody cut a water line. I go out there to see this puddle. My son and I take shovels and we start digging. All of a sudden I hit something solid, but it's really soft. Nobody has told me anything. I reached my hand deep into that puddle to pull up a rotting dead carcass of Neville staring at me. In that moment, the stench filled the entire backyard, went into my nose. I literally went inside and shampooed my nose six times, just trying to get it out, and I couldn't do it. Fixed the water line, took care of the situation, but it was absolutely disgusting. David is saying that is the image of these people, the rotting corpses. Their lies and their fat flattery are not intended to bring life and to honor God, but rather their intent is to kill and destroy. And friends, that is why David prays for God to judge them, to punish them, to thwart their schemes. And who in here would not do that when there is somebody wrecking havoc and evil in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, and in your nation? Do you not pray, God, stop them? A few years ago, we got a communication from the school up the road from us, that there was a guy going around in a van. And he tried to abduct a young girl on her way to school. And guess what I prayed in that moment? God, stop him. Let him be caught. May he go through the just judgment of the systems you put in place and make sure he can never do this again. You see, the crimes David is talking about here are not so much against him, but they're against who? They're God. It's not personal. Rather, the crimes are against God, and he's basically saying, God, just like a boomerang, comes back to the one who throws it, make them trip up, stumble, and find destruction in their own schemes. Fall by the destruction that they are causing. You see, mission God alone is good, holy, and righteous. There's only joy in him. And as followers of Jesus, we look at the world around us through the spectacles that Jesus has given us that we look around at the world around us, we look at the evil we're seeing through the perfect holiness, goodness, and righteousness that we see in God and we see in his word. You see, there is objective moral reality in this world, and it's because God exists. And many of us in this room can tell the stories of how we've been harmed physically, 
emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, because of people. And if there is no standard of morality, then hear me clearly, they're not wrong. But that is why as followers of Jesus, God has declared what is right and wrong. And it's by his standard that we pray for him to act. We pray for God to judge, to make them bear their guilt, and to fall by their own plans. And why do we do that? It's because I believe we want to see eventual good come in their lives. There are times in my life in which I have seen things, people warring against God and God's people, and I will actively pray, God, work against that. Help them to either fall by destruction of their own plan or God save them. But do not ignore this. Do not let this off the hook. Why do I do that? It's because as you and I look at the Psalms, we see that this is what is classified as an imprecatory psalm. What that means is, as these psalmists pray these prayers, they're praying for God to bring justice upon the wicked, that they are praying for God to, you know, vindicate his people. And don't miss this, don't miss this. At times, yes, at times, look at Psalm 83, verses 16 through 18. They pray for those who are doing the very harm to stumble upon their plans so that they will turn to God for salvation. Yet David shares in the last two verses the joy that you and I have who really know God. Listen to what he says. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them. And may those who love your name boast in you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. David ends his prayer, basically saying, God, either they succumb to their destructive ways, make that happen, or make them take refuge in you. God, judge them or save them, but don't let them off the hook. Don't ignore this. And the idea of taking refuge in, in God is not like temporarily going under a shelter in the midst of a rainstorm. But the idea of taking refuge of God is moving into a home in which God is all around you and above you and committing your life and future to God by relying on him and his power and protection in your life. You see, those who take refuge in God boast in who? Themselves? No. They boast in God. They exalt God. And how do they do that? By joyfully living out the righteousness of God. What that means is those who trust God live their lives to honor in honor and obedience to him. And don't miss this, not to earn anything from God, but out of gratitude for God. And some of us who are following God, maybe you're new in that faith, right? You're new trusting in Christ and you're walking along and you go, it just doesn't feel natural. That's okay. Keep walking. When you go out and buy a brand new pair of jeans, aren't they a little bit tight at first? But as you walk in them, what happens? They start to loosen up. They feel more natural. Maybe for you, it's more like me. When they come out of the wash, it's like, dang, on, what just happened? Did they shrink? <laughs> like, what's going on here? But the more you start walking in them, they start loosening up. And that's what happens, that when you trust in God, you are literally clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're given a new heart, new affections. You start to live out naturally, intrinsically, new desires and new affections. And as that happens, it becomes more natural. 
And don't miss what David said. God honors those who walk with him in integrity for the you in that verse is emphatic. And David says, God, you are like a shield around me. It's not talking about a, uh, like a chest shield, right? Just protects this. But rather, this is talking about a full body shield from feet to head. And he says, God, you are a protection all around me. And so far for the last 35 minutes, I've talked a lot about what is called the act of righteousness of God, what you and I must do. But you and I can look at this text. If you were like me, when I didn't know Jesus, I'd walk out of here and go, I can't do that. I can't change my heart. I can't change my affection. And as we go through the Psalms, we're not going to see these psalmists and these psalters talk a whole lot about, you know, active righteousness. They're going to talk about that, but they're also going to talk about passive righteousness. What does that mean? It's the truth that God's covering those who take refuge in him is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. You see, you and I, we look at this psalm. And we can walk out of here and go, I got to go clean myself up. But if you've heard me say anything over and over and over again, you can't do that. But rather, you have to point to the one that the Psalter is pointing to, and that is Jesus. And when you understand who Jesus is, that he left the comforts of heaven and took up residence and moved in the neighborhood and put skin on, it's, like, it's, it's incarnation. I mean, think of it kind of like chili, right? You got chili with no meat, you got chili with meat. Chili with meat glorifies God in the way regular chili can never do it. Because it's chili with meat. And that's what incarnation means, that Jesus came with meat. And he lived the perfect life you and I were meant to live. And he died the death that you and I were meant to die. And he rose again and he said, all those who believe in me, I'm going to send my spirit to indwell within them. To give them new hearts and new affections and new desires. I mean, this is a glorious good truth. I mean, think about what we just meditated on. He intercedes for you. People go, well, what's Jesus doing right now? He did all that person and work stuff here on earth. Is he just up there, you know, sipping on coffee and taking a break? The Bible says that if you're trusting in Jesus right now, guess what he's doing? He's praying for you. You talk about a shield of comfort that surrounds you, amen? There is a huge difference, friends, between knowing about God and knowing God. And my question to you is just simply this. Do you know God in the way you know somebody like, I don't know, Walter McCarty? Know a lot about him, or do you know him? You see, what the psalmist is showing us is who our God is. And he's basically saying, take a step back, marvel, and enjoy. Praise God for this text. Marvel at who he is. If you do not feel like you know him in the way in which you should, then cry out to him. Hear my prayer. Hear my groan. I angst. I long for you. God loves to hear that prayer, and he loves to answer that prayer. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you even for the, the difficult passages. And Father, I pray that right now, for those who are in Christ, that they will just rest in the goodness of who you are and what you've done for them. May they feel the comfort and the covering of Jesus all around them. Where they feel they've fallen short, 
God, yes, and amen. Repent, help them to repent, but help them also to treasure Jesus more. You say in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you took the punishment. There's none left. And so as we hear this text and think of times in which we've, you know, thought sin was funny or fun, entertained by it, attracted to it. God, we ask you to change us. For those in this room who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that right now you become so big that you help them to see that the reason we pray is emphatically a sign that, Jesus, you wanted us. And so I pray that you just, Holy Spirit and power, just bring them sweetly to you. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.